Hi everyone, I'm Anna Pilgrim. I'm Charlie Folds. I'm Veronica Meyer. I'm Emilia Novio. And I'm Catherine Shrub. And today we're going to be talking about why the UN sucks. So most of us have probably heard of the UN, especially if you're an American IR student here at St. Andrews. But to get technical for a brief moment, the structure of the UN has six parts. The General Assembly, the Security Council, the Economic and Social Council, the Trusteeship Council, the International Court of Justice, and the Secretariat. And those six parts all do different things. The General Assembly is probably the one that you would have heard of the most. It's the main assembly with the main policymaking and the representative sect of the United Nations. All 193 member states of the UN are equally represented, with each state having a single vote. It was all established at the Charter of the United Nations in 1945. The issues that fall under the perimeter of the UN are electing the 10 rotating members of the Security Council, debating the UN budget and each state's contribution, making policy recommendations about whether or not cooperation is occurring to protect international peace and security, among many other tasks. The General Assembly's function are to vote on designated important issues such as recommendations on peace and security, the election of the Security Council, and Economic and Social Council members, budgetary questions, and requiring two-thirds member of member states, but all other questions are decided by a simple majority. Another main part of the United Nations is the Security Council, which is made up of 15 members, five of them being permanent states and 10 being non-permanent. Of the five permanent members, there's Russia, China, the US, the UK, and France. This was all chosen because they were the main leaders after World War II, though some of them might be less relevant now, like the UK and France. The Security Council's purpose is to resolve threats to peace, preferably with nonviolent methods. Within the structure, the permanent five members that I mentioned are able to veto any decisions made, whereas the elected 10 need to vote by consensus. So yeah, that's a really important point to mention, is that it came out of the Second World War. Uh, it was created in 1945 as a peace-building organization. However, as much as it tries to do good, there are some issues with the United Nations, which we are going to delve into now. So we actually put out a poll asking people about their perceptions of the UN. Do they think it's a force for good? Um, so Charlie's going to talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I put out a poll basically saying, do you think the UN sucks? And we only got 31 total votes, but I think that's still pretty good. <laughs> um, so we had 13% for yes, so the UN does suck, which only happened after the poll had been out for a few days. So I think people were kind of maybe a bit scared to put that as their actual opinion. We had 19% of people saying no. And then we had the overwhelming majority, 68% saying kind of, but not totally, which I put mm. as an option because I feel like we can all agree with that. Yeah. Um, mm. I think we all like that the UN has good intentions, but we all have a bit of a problem with the execution of what they're doing. So th I put that as an option because I thought a lot of people wouldn't want to say cookie cutter yes or no. Um, but it was definitely interesting because I think we came at this with the idea of what, explaining why it does suck. But it seems that less people think that it sucks inherently than I was expecting. I don't know about you. Yeah, I think especially because it's such a big organisation, there's too much nuance to just kind of give a simple yes yeah. or no answer. Like there are some parts that it does do well and there are some parts where it does really horribly. And I think it's kind of important to acknowledge both. Also, a lot of the time, I think I would be surprised if many St. Andrews students themselves have been personally impacted by something that the UN has done. For sure. Mm. Additionally, like if they're not honestly, like in, like I said, an international relations student, mm -hmm. I feel like there is not a ton of stuff about the United Nations in the media. Mm -hmm. A lot of, when, even kind of before 
learning about the UN in class, I didn't really have a whole grasp on what exactly it does or why it's so important. But within that, I'd be curious to know for the people that just like don't really know in the middle, whether or not they actually know and don't care or if they just don't know too much about the UN. Yeah, I mean, I when I was kind of coming up with ideas to talk about in the podcast, I asked one of my coworkers, I was like, well, do you think the UN sucks or not? And every single person responded with, well, no, but <laughs> yeah. And one of my coworkers who has a little bit of a background in public policy, I guess, so he kind of knew what he was talking about with what you're saying. He brought up the fact that they've done so much amazing good when it comes to humanitarian aid and world food programs and healthcare and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And honestly, as an international relations student, that is not what comes to mind when I first think of the UN. Because mm-hmm. I've never been in a position where that's been something that I've been affected by. And when we're discussing it in class and stuff like that, it's always in terms of international treaties and international law and stuff like that and never the actual on the ground work which I think kind of gets lost and is another kind of misconception issue I totally agree with what you're saying also a lot of what's going on with the UN right now has to do with the Russian Ukraine crisis Mm -hmm. and the people who said yes the UN does suck might be thinking about this specific crisis because the UN has not really done as much as it could Mm -hmm. just because within the Security Council Russia has a veto vote, so anything that the Security Council is doing to preserve peace and security can't actually get done because Russia's Mm -hmm. vetoed anything that they've tried to bring forward. I would say that's a really interesting point that you bring up because when I was doing my research, I found an article from a UNA UK magazine from 2012, so 10 years ago, right? And a lot of the misconceptions are the exact same, Mm. the exact same things that people are talking about. But it was talking about how the biggest misconception is that people think the veto power use is coming from Russia and China who don't want liberal views spread throughout the world, right? Whereas in history, the majority of the times the veto power has been used has always been the US. Yeah. And it's always been to do with the Israel-Palestine conflict. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is something though, I had no idea about. Though Russia has used it the most out of all of them. Oh, I mean, every country, like, it's no doubt, other than France, I think every country uses it to the farthest it can. (laughs) Um, And what you were saying before really resonated with me about how the UN, as we study it as students, we're so focused on these huge big picture things like the wars going on, the conflicts. I mean, and international law to a certain degree is a study of conflict, but I think a lot of the good the UN does is in those little things, the supervising elections, Mm -hmm. the distributing vaccinations, and that's like boring news too. (laughs) Especially like IR students who are just so used to these big picture concepts. Mm -hmm. And also like with its function today, it doesn't really function the way that it did in 1945 because Mm. having the Security Council, which is such a large part of the UN, being having France and the United Kingdom, who are former colonial powers, but not to say anything or make any misconceptions about the UK, but a lot of them are not as strong as they used to be. So there's actually been some calls to replace France with the European Union on the Security Council because also France and the UK have not used their veto power since, I believe, 1989. So mm-hmm. they're not the ones. Right now it's all being controlled basically by the United States, Russia, and China. China. Yeah, I mean, I think that 
that's interesting in terms of the misconceptions because one of the things that people spoke about was how they view the United Nations and its perceived best interest as different from the members. And this was like a majority a United States misconception of the United Nation. But it basically was saying that people don't understand that the UN is not really much more than the sum of its parts. Obviously, every single country in the UN has different aims and different things that they want to push forward on the agenda. And realistically, the UN can only be a reflection of that and a reflection of who is powerful at the time and who is giving it the most funding, which is also a massive misconception because a lot of the time when people are saying, why doesn't the UN do more? Why don't they intervene? Stuff like that. It's massively underfunded. The UN has the same amount of funding as one governmental body in the United Kingdom. It's insane how we can expect an international organisation of such a size to work in a good and succinct way. Going off of Charlie's point, a lot of the limitations of the United Nations, because the UN Security Council can't function right now and nothing's really getting passed, that means that they're pushing off a lot of issues and conflicts coming to them, asking for help onto other actors like the African Union because they don't have the funding, they don't have the resources, nothing's getting passed through. So right now, the UN is in a state of kind of redundancy just because of the structure and how the structure's failed. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think one of the issues that kind of came to mind when I was doing this research was that this is an article from 2012, so it's 10 years ago, and it's by a UNA. So the exact same thing that we are right now, (laughs) right? So basically the same, we're doing the same thing 10 years later, and all the misconceptions are the same. And one of the biggest things that they said was that few people would disagree that the Security Council needs reform, right? Mm. Even 10 years ago, everybody understood that, but nothing has changed. So that's a problem within itself, right? That we can look at an article that was written by our peers 10 years ago and still be having the same issues. Because if the UN is so well-intentioned but doesn't have the ability to change in 10 years, why are we continuing to hold out hope that it might, you know? I also found in my research that many criticize the UN for being out of touch and ineffective. What you said, like... 10 years ago, it's like the same issues that we have today. Researchers have found that people are most in favor of the UN efforts to fight infectious diseases and action on climate change, even though now security is like such a big deal because of the Russia-Ukraine war. I feel like people's faith has been shaken a little by that. Well, what you were saying about how everyone kind of agrees that the P5, the permanent five members of the Security Council, everyone kind of agrees it's not really working anymore. Something interesting that I ran into when I was researching was that, you know, in 1945, at the conception of the UN, the P5 held 50% of the world population. So they were representative. Now they only hold 26% of the world population, but they still hold 50% of the world GDP. So if the UN lacks funding Mm -hmm. and its P5 are the wealthiest (laughs) members, Mm -hmm. they're not going to be able to change without reducing their own funding, which they're not able to do. (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's a good point. I think something else that is kind of maybe more a contemporary issue with everyone becoming a lot more polarized and stuff like that is that a lot of people have an issue with United being in the kind of name Mm -hmm. um, because... Although everyone has an equal vote, not everyone is involved, like as in every single possible recognized state. And those who are involved 
even though everyone has the same amount of power, people kind of agree that the underlying power is different, right? And I think that I understand that as a misconception because obviously we can sit here and say, well, everyone has equal power. But I also, so therefore it's a misconception, right? But I also understand that in any kind of diplomatic setting, those other aspects of power that aren't just the actual vote itself can sometimes be even more important. So I, I don't know if I would really classify that as a misconception or not. Also going off of Charlie's point, it is fascinating about one country, one vote. It gets complicated where there's countries who are not recognized by the United Nations. And while those might seem then not relevant, they can be some of the most relevant states like Palestine or Taiwan, mm-hmm. which are major points of contention in the international system. Whether or not the UN recognizes them causes major political effects. And also by not recognizing them, the UN is inadvertently picking the side. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah for sure. Yeah. Though it's supposed to be just kind of a neutral organization in the middle, that's where it gets complicated too. And they're not irrelevant places. They're places of high contention. Well, also, like, you're saying, you know, every state gets one vote, every state gets equal opportunity. That's the idea behind the UN. Mm -hmm. But then there are states that do pressure other states to vote in a certain way. There are states that kind of say, oh, well, we'll give you this and that and money if you go with us (laughs) in this vote, Mm -hmm. which is it then, you know, a a United Nations where everyone gets Mm -hmm. a vote and a chance to speak? Or is it corrupt in a way Mm -hmm. there's like politics within the UN that should be like not political at all yeah Yeah. and I think the fact that you're both bringing up here is that with Palestine and Taiwan being major players right now in the political landscape and not Mm -hmm. being a part of the decisions made by the UN that is just another example of the UN being behind and being out of touch with Mm -hmm. what everyone is currently going through That kind of raises the question, though, is it possible for the UN to not be political? And is it just functioning at the highest ability that it can, given self-interest and self-motivation of Mm -hmm. almost every state wanting to do what's best for them? Because at the end of the day, it's just an institution Mm -hmm. and people are using it in order to gain their own political gains and to support their own national interest. In a perfect world, it wouldn't be political, but... You can theorize however you want. Depends mm-hmm. on how many IR classes you've taken. It's not a very realist story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but is it possible that states are actually going to be able to work all together? Well, I believe that's a perfect world. I mean, is it a problem with it being too political? Or is it a problem with the P5, the permanent members, being too ingrained in the system and being able to say, like, oh, China's able to say Taiwan's part of us, mm-hmm. so they aren't a separate state. And the U.S. being able to say, oh, you know, Palestine doesn't get a chance to vote. Exactly. Is it just that too many states have too much power? Or is it the organization? Yeah, I would say it's probably a combination of both. The structure (laughs) should definitely change. But because obviously the permanent five have way too much power. Yeah. And therefore it's not united. But at the end of the day... People are. I think people are going to try to figure out how to use it to their own advantage. I mean, where we do IR, the answer is yeah. always nuanced. The yeah, exactly. Always. I'm like, it's a little bit of this, but yeah. it's also a little bit of that. No perfect world. Like, there is no perfect world. Yeah, I, yeah. I agree. I think that one of the issues that I think about a lot is that I've always really loved the idea of the UN, right? Yeah. I've always loved the idea of the perfect world that we're talking about, where countries can kind of put their self-interest aside to help better everyone else's lives. But we've clearly seen 
very recently that nobody is able to put their self-interest aside at all and nobody is willing to kind of put their literal money where their mouth is Mm. when it comes to trying to make these institutions better because we can all completely agree that it needs to be better funded and stuff like that yet nobody's going to do it especially not the p5 members who want to keep their Mm -hmm. p5 membership they're still not going to put any more funding into it because they don't have to because they already have the power and we can't really change it without them wanting to change it Mm -hmm. i we're mostly at a place right now i feel like we're kind of reaching a boiling point where right now the p5 are getting what they want to an extent but it will all boil over i believe depending on the outcome of the Russia and Ukraine Mm. invasion and how that will affect Russia's place in the international system, which is to get technical, but I believe that that is a time where the UN is going to probably shake up a bit just because people have been getting mostly what they've wanted. But at this point, if Russia loses, things might change. Well, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, we're now far enough along into this conflict where Russia has committed multiple war crimes, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. A state that has committed active war crimes can't be a member of the Security Council. To me, the fact that they still are as we speak is really, really wrong. So it it will have to change. It should already be changing. And the fact that it isn't is kind of confusing to me, if I'm totally honest. Yeah, so I don't take IR. So I'm wondering, do you guys know why they haven't been kicked off yet? They kind of, so, (laughs) um, one thing we really have to remember when talking about the United Nations is that its precursor was the League of Nations. Mm -hmm. And the UN, its main concern is we're not going to have another world war Mm -hmm. because the League of Nations let World War II happen. Mm -hmm. So I don't think Russia's ever going to get kicked off the UN. I don't think China is. I don't think the US is. Mm Because if any one of them gets kicked off, it's a domino effect. And World War Three might happen. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. The United Nations is also a negotiating site. Mm-hmm. And if you remove a country from that negotiating site, then you just kind of polarise them more. And that exactly. can be devastating for international diplomacy. Which is kind of the case with Russia and NATO. Yeah. Where mm-hmm. NATO, another humongous organisation, almost on the same level as the United Nations, with a similar goal of preserving peace and security, has come into Russia's backyard. And that's a reason that they cite for their invasion. So doing the same again, polarizing Russia again, would definitely not have the result that we wanted to. Mm. And yeah. also, um, Charlie mentioned, like, okay, Russia's committing, you know, acts of terror, war crimes. I think the reason that the UN, I, they had an assembly recently of human rights, a human rights assembly. They talked about Russia in Ukraine and they talked about Xinjiang, China. And the reason that they can't really do anything, it's one of the problems with international law enforcement, Um, but the other problem is that every country, especially in the P5, has committed war crimes, has Mm -hmm. committed acts against humanity. Um, So again, the domino effect, if one country is kicked off, falls, it's just going to be a a finger-pointing competition. Mm -hmm. (laughs) No, I completely agree. And I think also it's important to note that it's part of the UN charter that if Mm. there is a dispute that is occurring and the P5, one of the P5 members is a party in that dispute, the Security Council has to abstain from voting. So Mm. obviously this isn't something that can be fixed right now. I I completely understand that and I agree. And I think what you're saying about the domino effect is really interesting, right? Because this came out of a world war 
and as we said earlier when 50% of the world was owned effectively yeah. by the same people and although now we're in a different kind of globalized world where it's very easy for people to say oh but war crimes that so they yeah. should go I think it's worth thinking about well is the United Nations there to stop war crimes from happening and thus keeping them a part of it or to make them face consequences for their actions I feel like that really speaks on the nature of war just because it's changed so much. Mm -hmm. It's also really difficult to do any prosecuting of these permanent five nations because all, almost all of the war that has engaged between the members are in the form of proxy wars. So for Mm -hmm. example, Syria is an example of that Mm -hmm. and Israel where there are members of the permanent five engaging in relations with each other, but through another nation, which is what a proxy war is through another conflict, but they're funding different sides of it. They're hoping for their own result. They're not letting the UN Security Council get involved. I think another interesting dimension to add is the increasing number of civilian deaths that come Mm -hmm. with each war. Mm -hmm. That's another big point for the UN. Minimizing the number of civilians that get caught up and affected by not only, you know, war, but also climate change. It is, at the end of the day, a humanitarian organization aimed at putting people first and the wellness of people first. It's different when it's kind of two governments going at each other, but when civilians are getting caught up in the process, there is more of a reason to intervene. Should the UN be there to facilitate discussion and make sure that we don't have any more war or civilian casualties? Or is it there to make sure that the countries who do cause these civilian casualties and commit war crimes face the consequences of their actions? Well, and this is such a big thing that people critique the UN onto, this perceived inaction. Mm. Um, But like Veronica was just talking about with proxy wars, the UN is very, very in tuned with a bigger picture than these small conflicts, so to speak. So their main goal, like I said before, is to prevent a World War III, prevent a global catastrophe. So let's take in the case of Rwanda, the Rwandan genocide. That was a Belgian colony. The Hutus, who were running the country at the time, in a way, were French-speaking, French culturally. They were getting support and aid from the French. The Tutsis were English-speaking. Those were the refugees who were going into neighboring countries. And so for the UN to look at this conflict and pick a side Mm -hmm. could potentially cause a proxy war between French and an English speaking country like the UK or the US. Yeah. So people say, oh, why didn't they jump in earlier? I think the UN is so infinitely complex Mm -hmm. that, yeah, it is kind of that bureaucratic problem (laughs) where it just takes so long for them to decide anything, but it also is necessary in a way where there is the potential for greater conflict in every small conflict. The Rwanda genocide was a long time in the making. Like I said, Rwanda was originally a Belgian colony and the Belgian people created a kind of ethnicity division in Rwanda, um, making people identify by their tribe, by their ethnicity, by their race. Um, They would measure their facial features So racism became very rampant in the country, and it created this kind of sociopolitical elite also of the Hutus who, like I said, were French-speaking. And French people seeing this 
decided, oh, we're going to send aid, we're going to become a dominant force in Rwanda, we're going to give these Hutus support, money, whatever they need, um, which is all good and well until the Hutus turn around and say the Tutsis are cockroaches and need to be exterminated and they have French guns <laughs> on their side. So the Tutsi refugees fled to the neighboring countries. Um, there was mass bloodshed, tons of fighting. France eventually set up safe zones, but they didn't really do it effectively. The UN tried to get involved, but one of the problems with the Rwanda genocide and getting the UN involved was right before the Rwanda genocide, UN was in Somalia and had some UN troops die. And so they were kind of in a little bit of a publicity <laughs> problem. Mm. And they didn't want to send any more troops to die. Mm. They'd rather a war go on and be out of it than go in there and fail again. Right. So it was yeah. up to France and France wasn't doing it effectively. And basically a lot of people died. Yeah. And people blame it on the UN in part, which fair. Yeah. <laughs> to be exact, the death toll was about 800,000 yeah. over 100 days, which yeah. is such a large number in such a small amount of time. Yeah, I know. And right? a lot I know. of people forget Same. about it, even though it's such a recent conflict, like it was yeah. in 1994. So it's kind of, you know, the deadly yeah. effect of UN inaction, yeah. kind of favouring its public image over the lives of the people it's supposed to be helping. Back to what... Kat was saying, I think there is also like a limitation on the UN, right? So I don't well, think yes. they can just intervene into conflict, just move in and be like, let's not do this, right? I think there is also like they're um, restricted by a certain set of rules that I'm assuming, as I'm not an IR student, are <laughs> no, international you're law. Completely right. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so you know how I just said that one of the reasons the UN didn't want to intervene in Rwanda was because they had just had a, a kind of failure in Somalia? Yeah. Well, that was the exact problem in Somalia. Yeah. Because when the UN went to Somalia about 1992-1995, the Somalian government had just collapsed. So there was no one to ask consent to go into the country. Mm -hmm. And they did it anyway. They tried to be very neutral about it at first. But that is, to this day, one of the main contentions about what the UN did in Somalia because there was no one who gave them a go-ahead, there was no consent, so it's seen as even a bigger failure because of that. Mm -hmm. And so to go into Rwanda immediately, you're right, there has to be checks and balances, there has to be people they ask, and that's one of the reasons it takes a while. One of the limitations of the UN is that all the peacekeepers are from countries. <laughs> they aren't UN peacekeepers, they're Belgian peacekeepers, they're French peacekeepers, they're Chinese peacekeepers. Yeah. And one of the problems in Rwanda were that being an ex-Belgian colony, the majority of the peacekeepers in Rwanda were Belgian. Mm -hmm. And as soon as the French started to get involved, Belgium pulled 90% of its peacekeepers out of Rwanda. So they can do that? So the country... Yeah through the UN yeah. can pull their people yes. out. Exactly. So it's so political. It, this oh, is the whole yeah. point. It's like the UN, <laughs> this is what I was saying about the misconceptions. The UN is literally only the sum of its parts. Yeah. Like this mm -hmm. is one of the biggest issues because every single state involved in the United Nations is their own player at the end of the day. And yeah. so who regulates it? That's the whole As thing. It should be the UN. Realistically, the UN can't check itself because 
the UN isn't a UN, it is not a United Nations, it is a coagulation of different countries. And then we have the issues where Belgium pulls its troops out and stuff like that. And the UN can't effectively regulate that. So how do we get it so that it's functioning as a regulatory body? Mm. How do we actually make that aspect effective? Because that would ring true now with Russia and Ukraine and China and Taiwan. So one of the difficulties, and and one of the reasons, right, we've been talking about these changes for over 10 years, we've been talking Mm. about these changes since the conception of the UN, is that any change that happens in the UN has to go through these same systems, has to go through, you know, the P5, get get their de facto veto. So they all have to agree, which before I get too far on that, there is a reason they have that veto. There is a reason it has to be all of them agree in order to get something done. And that is because they want to be a United Nations. They want to speak with the same voice. There can't be one huge country saying, oh, well, I don't agree with that in the background. Mm -hmm. So I think that is also one of the main problems in making the UN better, in changing some of these things we don't like about how the Mm -hmm. UN acts, is that all of these little checks and balances and bureaucratic methods and ways in which it runs, which seem utterly complex and unnecessary, are all there for very specific reasons. Yeah, yeah, of course. And to start to unwind that might just like pull apart like an old sweater. Yeah, I, I don't think, even as somebody who's like genuinely interested in the United Nations, I don't think I could ever understand every <laughs> single bureaucratic check and balance that there is there. So I completely, I know where you're coming from. Um, I just think that my biggest thing, obviously because this month I was tasked with misconceptions, right? right. So I've read a lot of what people don't like about the United yeah, Nations. Yeah. And I just genuinely can't see a fix. I can't see a way to make it better and I can't see a way to make it work effectively without just eliminating national interest <laughs> and <laughs> eliminating the need for millions and millions of dollars. I genuinely can't see a way. Well, but I think that's also the point of it, no? You can't make it simple. Like, that's, mm, it's mm-hmm. like impossible. That's mm-hmm. the point of the UN. It's to be a huge, complex body of so many states that right. help or try to help each other. I think we're never going to get the UN as a perfect body. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we do have certain checks and balances that work in some situations, but don't work in others. Yeah. Like, for example, you know, the UN had this big scandal when it interfered in Somalia because it didn't have consent but actually the UN needs that consent and you know there are issues mm. surrounding that you know governments that give consent but what if governments are not representing the interests of the people mm. what if the governments are corrupt um, things like that but at the end of the day you know even though sometimes that check completely fails like it does in Somalia other times it does stand up really well and in terms of national sovereignty it is important that the UN can't just go into each country as it pleases but has that check on its power that need for consent is really important if you've ever been lucky enough to go on a tour to any of the UN offices that's the first thing they say about how Mm. the UN works is that they need permission from that government to go in and interfere and help with the humanitarian crisis or help with the conflict Um, so there's definitely I think there'll never be a kind of one-size-fits-all 
kind of policy or uh, check or balance that the UN has because of how it's applied to different situations will work in some cases and not work in others. So we can't really overhaul them a system because there is a reason why that system is in place. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the, like, quote-unquote issues we keep bringing up with the UN, I don't even think is technically a problem with the UN more than it is a problem with international law in general. Oh, completely agreed. Exactly. You can't enforce international law because someone's always going to dissent, someone's always going to refuse, someone's always going... International law and the UN, it's all just a jumble, a hodgepodge of different norms and cultures and shared history. And at the end of the day, like with the UN and international law, we just got to say like, we are all in this together. Yeah. (laughs) And it's honestly the best um, metaphor I can, I've ever heard is that international law is kind of like the fairies in Peter Pan, where it's like, you just got to believe in them hard enough (laughs) or they'll all disappear. (laughs) (laughs) No, I know what you mean. I think you're completely right. I mean, all of the issues that we're bringing up are not only issues with the UN, Mm. like you said. They can be seen within all nations, within other international organisations, things like that. But I think the reason that they're so pertinent, of course, but I think the reason that they're so pertinent and they're so visible with the United Nations is because it is the biggest body with the most countries that is trying to do good and help save lives and help provide humanitarian aid and Mm -hmm. to help try and enforce, in a way, international law. Yes, it's not just a problem for the UN, it's just more visible, I think. Going off of that, I do think the UN is heading in a direction where it's willing to be a little bit more strict. Earlier this year, the UN actually condemned human rights violations in Xinjiang in China, which, honestly, I was shocked. I was flabbergasted. (laughs) Like, if you know the amount of peacekeeping troops and the amount of money that China sends the UN, like, people people think China completely bribes the UN. For the UN to turn around and say, hey, you actually need to change this, 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 and this to China, I was shocked. I was completely shocked. And so it's obvious that the UN really wants to try to be this perfect body. Like a benevolent force. Exactly. What consequences can the UN trade embargoes like stopping them from being able to trade a certain thing like they could say to russia you can't trade any more oil or something like well, that well nobody's doing that right well, now right? yeah but like well no because we need it but yeah. like that they can do that they can they can't impose taxes but like that's their version of imposing taxes but that's it and then they can like strongly condemn yeah and then that's basically what happened with Xinjiang in China earlier this year, where they just published this huge assessment where they said, okay, we've done this study, we've been to these places, um, and they basically gave a list that was like pages long. I tried so hard to read it, um, <laughs> where it's just like, you can't do this, you can't surveil people in this way, you can't do this to these people. But and isn't that another problem of enforcement? Like, how do they enforce They don't. The and the, the language they use is, like, strongly condemn yes. and expect that. And if you ever did, like, modeling at UN, it's like, yeah. they aren't telling you to not do anything. They're just stating what they think you should do. The next step is calling a specialized committee. Yeah. However, like we said earlier, the UN has to get consent. 
-hmm. So the UN can go to China and say, we want to do a specialized committee on the human rights atrocities you're committing in Xinjiang. And then China can go, leave my office. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that's honestly what they did to the assessment too. The UN published this assessment and then China immediately handed in this like 200 page Goliath. <laughs> they had it locked and loaded. Just yeah. crazy retaliation where they're like, actually every single thing you said is wrong and here's why. Yeah. And that they and you know that's and all the UN can do. There you go. That's the problem at its core. The UN is trying to do good, and China is a member of the UN, who, by theory, should be wanting the UN to produce this good for the good of humanity, right? But they're not. It's self-interest, and they're going to retaliate with that two hundred Goliath book, being like, "Well, here's why it's wrong because it's impacting us as a nation negatively, not the United Nations." One of the problems right now in debating about international law and the UN is how it was formed and how Western it is, how Western that formation is, yeah. and how Western all the perceptions of humanitarian law, law in general. What we think is right and wrong is so cultural mm -hmm. to any extent, and that is one of the big debates that's coming up, mm -hmm. just perception. And yeah. I, I do think there definitely is bias towards Western countries. Yeah. There definitely is. So in my research, I found a research center that's called the Pew Research Center, which surveyed 16 countries, but also those were mostly Western. Yeah. They found that the international, in quotation, <laughs> um, attitudes toward the UN are largely positive, and that the mean of 65% say that they have a favorable view of the organization, but the 35% that have a non-favorable view were also said to be among the political right. So there's also seen mm. a difference between how people view the UN in combination with how they view politics in general. There was also three countries found that fewer than half adults see the UN as abundant or not favorable, which were Greece, Japan, and Israel. It was also found people aged 18 to 29 are those who view the UN most positively. That's very interesting. Honestly, that's that's me. Yeah. I guess when you think about it for long enough, it makes sense. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know what I was expecting, but it's interesting to see that young people are more likely to see the UN favorably. But I think that comes back to us wanting to kind of hope for the best yeah. and us wanting to believe in that overarching mm. message that the UN wants to do good and I think it makes sense that all of us want to believe in a kind of benevolent force for good and a body that genuinely has individuals safety at the core of their interest rather than money or power or sovereignty or anything like that yeah and especially when i'm defending it so kind of friends that have a much less favorable view of the un it's better that it exists than it not existing yes, at all for sure. even though it is a flawed but complicated system mm -hmm. it is better that we have that in place that we have this kind of sounding board where countries can talk to each other countries can share scientific data mm -hmm. you know countries can work with each other to get vaccines out like that is so important mm -hmm. and I think even though there are problems with how the UN carries out what it does I still believe that you know it itself is a force for good and can in the future definitely still continue to be that 
I think we also focused a lot on security and war. But as you said earlier, like the UN is not just these big conflicts, these big issues, but it's also the little things, the humanitarian crises where the UN delivers food and resources. And it's also climate change mm-hmm. where everybody comes together because we all don't want our planet to die. It's like those things that are not focused on in the media or in mm-hmm, school yeah. or the good things that the UN actually succeeds at. So I think that also contributes to the overarching negative view that some people have. And I, we talk about the failures of peacekeeping in some countries, but we also have to remember that the peacekeepers of the UN also do so much good yeah. in so many countries every single year. That you just don't hear about. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you don't hear about things that go well. I mean, the UN sucks as much as any governmental institution or organization yeah. does, but it's doing so much It's good. trying. It's, it's, it's trying. trying. <laughs> it's doing its best. And I think at the end of the day, that's what matters. We are all much better We're off all trying our best. with the UN than without it. Yeah. Yeah. It was great yeah, chatting with you guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my God, this is actually so much fun. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. Um, thank, thank you for you. listening. Yeah. Thank you for oh, listening. Yeah. For sure. Thanks yeah. so much for listening. I wonder how many people got to the end. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how many people listened. Like, subscribe. Yeah. <laughs> also, the resources that we used will be found in the description below.